Well, good morning. If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18, we'll be continuing our study there today. There we go. Excellent. Acts chapter 18, we're going to look at the first 17 verses of that, Lord willing. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to come together so freely and so easily. We thank you for it. Uh, We thank you for the Word of God. Help us today that we would uh, divide it correctly and understand it and uh, see in it things that are encouraging and edifying to us, that we would be made uh, more like the Lord Jesus and we would be uh, effective in our lives because of the truth and the application that we see in the Scripture. So help me to only speak the truth uh, you would have me speak today and anything, uh, even that I have prepared, Lord, that uh, I either wouldn't say it or that it would be forgotten uh, and only the, the truth would come through. Anything of my own uh, flesh or anything incorrect would be forgotten, Lord. So help us to tune in now with our hearts and minds and uh, look into your word together. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 18. The theme we're going to be considering today, largely, to to look at it in a zoomed out sort of way, is light in the darkness. And what I want us to kind of be aware of and and keep in mind as we look here is that, uh, especially, I mean, even today, we can look around and see a lot of darkness around us, right? In the world, we see a lot of things that are discouraging, and we can become discouraged by these things. But light is not extinguished by darkness, right? The more darkness there is, the brighter a light shines, right? Uh, I gave my girls glow sticks the other day, and they were very disappointed until I turned the lights off, right? They had a source of light, and it wasn't that much fun. It was a cool color. But when it became darker, all of a sudden, this illumination from the light was more apparent, and it was more obvious. So even though we often see darkness all around us, we ought not to be... Uh, discouraged in, in the sense that the light, the truth of the gospel has all that much more of a chance to shine brightly. And we're going to see that today in a city and in specific individuals that had a lot of darkness in them that the light pierces in. So there's many lessons here. First, for Christians specifically, when we take up the task of evangelism, that is sharing the good news of the gospel, I want us to see a couple things that we can expect when we evangelize, and a couple things that might encourage us in the process. But there's also lessons for everyone, Christians or otherwise, right? Whether you identify as an atheist or simply a non-Christian or of another religion, Jewish, Muslim, any, any other living person can look at and consider the salvation that is offered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And how superior it is to everything else that this world has to offer. And how suitable it is. Or that um, it's adaptable. It's fit for every person. right? Regardless of where they come from. And regardless of the amount of darkness that may be in and around them. So Christians, we can have a lot of fears and discouragement when it comes to evangelism. We may fear or be discouraged by the world's wickedness, right? That darkness that we see all around us. I often find myself thinking someone is a lost cause, right? There's no way that person is going to respond to the gospel. This is an excuse that we use, right? 
to not share the gospel. We may fear the world's hatred, their rejection of us, right? Again, speaking for myself, I often assume, and this is ridiculous, but I assume, uh, you know, everyone seems to hate Jesus and hate Christianity. I'm sure they've heard the gospel and they're going to reject it and they hate it. Usually that's an indication that we haven't shared the gospel very much because most people, even if they hate Jesus and hate Christians and hate the church, they really don't know what the gospel is. I recently spoke with a, a co-worker who would probably call himself an agnostic, um, and he didn't even have a concept that Jesus called, was called the Son of God or that Jesus was God. And I just assumed that he had already heard about the gospel and made his decision. We may fear the world's philosophy. We may think they, they, they're going to ask hard questions. They're going to have... Um, in, you know, questions and, and concerns and ideas that I'm not going to be able to answer. Well, that may be true. But as much as we are called to have an answer and be ready to make a defense, that doesn't mean we have to be prepared for every uh, 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 would-be philosophy. A lot of the time, the, the philosophical arguments and the rebuttals that we're going to experience aren't actual concerns or questions from people. They're just trying to be argumentative. The truth of the gospel and the salvation offered by the gospel and the evidence of the gospel in your life individually is far more powerful than the philosophy of this world. We can do our best to study and prepare these things, but oftentimes we'll find a fear of objections that we don't know how to answer. And maybe it's the world's allure. Maybe we feel a hypocritical sharing the gospel. And this is something very dangerous. If we don't feel fit to share the gospel, we ought to very carefully examine our own lives and our lifestyle and our own profession of faith. And for everyone to consider salvation, what it is, why should we desire salvation, right? Especially in the world, they may be caught up in their own pursuits, right? Uh, money and position and power and uh, various other accolades of the world. Why would we desire the gospel? Even just in this life, right? We'll talk in a moment about the eternal importance of the gospel, but even in our, our life here, why would we want to, you know, many would say have all these rules and restrictions. Well, a couple I would quickly suggest are the joy that is found in the gospel. What is joy? Joy is a happiness that is not based on things that happen, right? The world has happiness that comes and goes, but there's nothing in this world and in your life that can't be taken from you until you come into a relationship with Christ. And now you have this perfect uh, a perfect union, a perfect loving relationship that literally nothing can take away from you. So there's perfect joy in the Christian life and in the gospel. There's perfect peace, right? Again, similar idea. Circumstances come and go, regardless of which side of politics you're on, right? You may be a little apprehensive right now. Uh, a financial situation may make you apprehensive, right? But in the Lord Jesus Christ and in that salvation, we have something that is unmovable and steady that can, we can have peace in and with. Wisdom, right? The Bible says that it contains everything pertaining to life and godliness. The questions that we have day to day in life, the gospel provides all of these answers. 
And then outside of this life, right? Why should we depend on the gospel? The reality is that each of us will die and stay, or, or come to the end of our earthly life, at least. Uh, and we'll stand before God. And if the question came up of why should you be allowed into heaven, there is no answer available other than the gospel and the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus made. And depending on his sacrifice for our salvation. And many who are actually sincere in their consideration of the gospel may wonder if they deserve it. It's a resounding no. We don't deserve what was offered to us in the gospel. But there is no amount of darkness and no amount of sin and rebellion that cannot be redeemed by the gospel. And we'll see a little bit of that here in the story we're going to read now. In Acts chapter 18. So starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So this, a quick summary of what where Paul has just been. He's been in Athens. He was in the uh, uh, sort of a, a philosophical meeting place uh, called the Areopagus. And he was addressing the men of Athens. And they, it says they spent their time in nothing except telling and hearing new things and new stories. They were a people with lots of idols and lots of gods that they worshipped. And Paul goes in and he suggests to them, you even have an idol or a temple or a a monument here to an unknown God. Well, I'm going to tell you the God that you've been missing and the God you've been wondering about. And he argues with them philosophically. He even quotes their own philosophers and applies um, some of these philosophies to the true Lord Jesus. And talks about God, uh, God coming as Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. There was some mockery. Some people were somewhat interested. And a few of them here in Athens believed. And after that, he comes now to Corinth. So, Athens is where he was recently. And he's now come over to Corinth. Now, Corinth was a... Very populated, wealthy, bustling city. Uh, they were very, just as Athens was, very philosophical, high in education. But they were also a very godless, or I should say immoral. They had plenty of false gods. Immoral place. Now, part of why Corinth was such a, uh, um, a bustling area is because this trip around the peninsula here was about 200 miles of very dangerous travel. The sailors would say you need to prepare your will if you're going to sail around this area. 200 miles of a dangerous trip. This little bit of land here was about three and a half miles. And they would actually take their ships and roll them across the three and a half miles. So this was one of the busiest trade routes in the ancient times. So people all, all the time, transients passing through would be visiting Corinth, seeing Corinth, trading and, and uh, dealing with Corinth. So there was an unbelievable amount of wealth and population and activity in Corinth. But the Corinthians were known for their immorality. In, in ancient, even in ancient Greek plays, if they were going to have a drunkard in the play, it would be a Corinthian. Corinthian was an insult um, in ancient times. And they had many temples that they 
to Aphrodite, the goddess of uh, sexual love, and there would be lots of cult prostitution, especially with all these sailors passing through. This was just a, a very foul, immoral city. And this is where Paul now finds himself. Verses 2 and 3. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers. So you may have heard of Aquila and Priscilla before. This is the first time that they're mentioned in Scripture. Um, Apparently they do come to Christian faith because they eventually leave with Paul and uh, go on some of his journeys and they'll end up in Ephesus. And they do end up teaching uh, the gospel accurately, the Bible tells us. But they were kicked out of Rome, it says, by Claudius. So now we've got our same little area here. We've just zoomed out a little bit. Right? It says they were uh, from Pontus, which is an area up here by the Black Sea. Uh, and they were in Italy. And they were the, in Rome, all the Jews were kicked out. So I don't know if they were specifically in Rome or if kind of a larger area decided to vacate as well. But they've come from Italy here to Corinth. Now, this uh, activity of kicking the Jews out of Rome was not recorded elsewhere in Scripture that I know of. But there is a, an historian, Suetonius, who, who writes in this time, a few years after, that Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because they were constantly exciting tumults under their leader, Crestus. Now, Crestus is not written anywhere else in antiquity. We don't know what that name relates unless it's a small mispronunciation of Christos, which would be Christ. So the, the teachings of Christ penetrating and causing these tumults, possibly, this is not in Scripture, but it seems to be what we might piece together. And so the Jews were just forced out. They didn't want to deal with their uprisings and their argumentative nature. And Paul stays with them because they have in common a trade. Right? And we see this also throughout Scripture, right? Paul often as he's traveling, doesn't want to burden the churches, right? The churches may have given him gifts, but he didn't want to waltz in and sort of demand support. So he would always do his best to support himself with a trade. Verse 4, while he's here in Corinth, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, when you hear synagogue, uh, you may expect that there would be just Jews there, right? The synagogue is a place of Jewish study and worship. But it does seem that the Greeks, or there was known as non-Jews, were in there, whether they were curious or perhaps interested in conversion, but maybe not up to the point of circumcision. Uh, there, there seemed to be some Greeks in the area there, and Paul was reasoning with all of them, with the Jews and with the Greeks. Verse 5, When Silas and Timothy arrived, from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Macedonia up here. Timothy and Silas have made their way down. Paul actually sent for them in the previous chapter. He asked that they would come and join him here in Corinth. And it says, when they arrived, Paul was occupied with the word. 
Now, this is not explicit, um, but if you look at the language and kind of piece it together, it seems that the arrival of Paul, uh, of Silas and Timothy, rather, encouraged Paul. And this is what got him fired up to, to resume, as it were, the work, right? He's, he's here dealing with uh, Corinth. And if you kind of consider Paul's history recently, right? He, he started out in Macedonia, had a limited response there, went down to Thessalonica. Uh, he was rioted out of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea, has a little bit of success, but the Thessalonians come over there. They, they chase him out of that town. He goes to Athens. He argues with the philosophers, has a little bit of success. He comes here to Corinth and he sees such immorality. It's not hard to imagine. Paul would become weary. And he sends for Silas and Timothy uh, to come join him. And they arrive. And it may be that their arrival animated him and stirred him back up to this renewed zeal, to be occupied with the word. There's a lot of different translations there, uh, compelled by the word, constrained, pressed in. He was consumed by the work of the word. Verse 6, this is the Jewish reaction. And maybe some of the Greeks that were there in the synagogue as well. They opposed and reviled him. Lots of different words there. Resisted, blasphemed, spoke abusively, spoke evil. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Now I will go to the Gentiles. This is something Paul has said before, specifically in Acts 13. Um, he says, since you have thrust aside the gospel and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. So this seems to be a bit of a, a limited and local application because after saying such things, Paul would continue in different cities to visit the synagogues. And as we'll see in a moment, um, even after saying this, that I'm going to go to the Gentiles now, there are some Jews that continue uh, to hear the gospel and come to faith. But this is where we see, and there's many examples of this in Scripture, but looking at this story specifically is where we can start to see some of our expectations for evangelism. If we choose to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in the sharing of the gospel, some of the things that we can expect, that if we become occupied with the word, consumed by it, obedient to it, we will be opposed and if you had a different translation with some of those different words, we've got something for that too. If you've enlisted, you'll be resisted, right? If you've come into the service of the Lord to obey Him and share the gospel, you will meet resistant. And if you want to be of use, you will be abused, right? If you want to serve the Lord and obey Him, you can expect bad things to happen to you. Uh, and whether that is physical, like Paul had a real threat, right? He'd already been stoned to the point that he looked dead, right? It's not a common threat here, at least not in my circles. I don't know if you run in those areas. Um, but you will meet some sort of resistance. And whether that's just relationship persecution or, or mockery, you can expect that when you evangelize. And then, as one commentator said, this was not my own, Two ships that always sail together, apostle ship and hardship, right? Um, that if you choose to obey the Lord, again, that, that term apostle, or even you might just say a discipleship, right? Someone that's learning the scriptures and, and obeying them by going out and teaching. 
And of course, I added in there the third ship that is very helpful, fellowship, which is what we see when Timothy and Silas came, seems to have encouraged Paul in his work. But you can expect opposition and resistance. Verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Some translations specify that he was uh, Titius Justus, the Gentile. Um, some of them just call him Justice. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we have not only a Jew here, Crispus, but a leader of the synagogue, right? Simple term, we can kind of compare it to a pastor, an elder, right? Someone that was leading here in the synagogue. Now, this was after uh, Paul had said, I'm going to the Gentiles. So I don't know, perhaps the message that Paul had been teaching was now rippling through or perhaps being right next door to the synagogue, some Jews were still coming over with curiosity. But here in this city, Crispus, the leader of the Jewish people, that would not be who I expected to win over. The leader of the synagogue believes in the Lord. Does his family reject him and stick to the Jewish faith? Doesn't seem so. His whole household believes. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So now we see the work. We get to see some of the fruit now, right? Paul's getting to experience the power of the gospel. Even though he's been opposed and resisted and abused and might have been getting weary. And as we'll see in a moment, he was getting scared. We see redemption. We see the power of the gospel piercing not only immorality and darkness and wickedness in this city, but religious zeal piercing through into the synagogue, into its leader. This is encouragement now for evangelism, the power of the gospel. And as it said, again, in some translations, that they were blaspheming when Paul was teaching, right? Denying who Jesus was, which... If you consider the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus made in, in, in giving his perfect sinless blood for those who sinned against him, blasphemy seems like it's just about the worst thing a person could do, but he's the redeemer even of blasphemers. And as we'll look at the end of the, uh, our passage here in a moment, Crispus, who now comes to the Lord and believes, apparently needs to be replaced because we can't have a Christian leading the synagogue. And it seems that a man steps into his position named Sosthenes. Well, Sosthenes gets saved as well. In 1 Corinthians, when Paul is writing a letter now to the, or would write a letter to the church that is being formed here in this passage, he refers to Sosthenes as a brother and gives greetings from Sosthenes. So not only does one religious leader uh, come to the Lord, his replacement, I don't know how quickly, comes to the Lord. Now, I would imagine, this is not in the scripture, that if you had a religious leader and he was converted to another faith and you went to replace him, you'd probably pick somebody pretty fiercely Jewish, right? Maybe even someone more zealous for the Jewish faith, but he's converted as well the power of the gospel and the power of the, the result of Paul's faithfulness and continuing to share the good news of the Lord Jesus. 
Oh, yes. This isn't in my notes. I added this at the last minute. I often hear today in our world the idea that religion is just a crutch. If you don't understand science or if you can't cope with negative emotions, you may turn to religion. There are so many examples in Scripture of this not being the case. Um, Throughout Acts, thinking of the, the passage that I got to deal with in Acts 13, we see people in government positions of power, godless people in government coming to Christ, people who spent their lives being educated in philosophy coming to Christ. Um, religion, right? We, we see these people that they didn't have um, a lack of faith, as it were. They were extremely zealous. They were leaders in the synagogue being turned by the gospel. The gospel not only pierces the darkness that we were considering here in Corinth, but even the high-mindedness of philosophy and religion. And if we could step back for just a moment to verse 7 and consider justice, Titius justice. All we see about him is that he was a worshiper of God. It's very possible that he was pivotal in Paul's time in Corinth. Uh, it doesn't say that he stayed there or how long he stayed there, but it could have been regular visits. It could have been there the whole 18 months that he spends in Corinth. But this, this figure seems to be of importance. But all we hear about him is that he's a worshiper of God. And if, if, if any of us individually were mentioned in one little passing verse in Scripture, what would be our descriptor, right? Is that sufficient to summarize us as an individual? Or do we have other hobbies and occupations of our time that, you know, at a quick impulse, describe me in one word, what would it be? Would it be father, husband, good things? Or would you be characterized as a worshiper of God. And praise the Lord that we are not only commanded to, but we have the ability to do everything as unto the Lord. Right? So even as we go about doing good things, right? Maybe that's our occupation, maybe it is being a father or a husband or a wife. That we can do those things as unto the Lord and still be serving and honoring Him and being a witness for Him in those things. If we gave 10% of our time to the Lord, that'd be about two and a half hours a day. 10%, the tithe sort of required in certain parts of Scripture, right? If we, if we just tried to do that two and a half hours a day, I do not dedicate two and a half hours a day to the Lord. And that's just 10%, right? We spend over a third of our time sleeping, which is how we were designed. That's not a sin. But praise God that we can use all of our time to his glory and as unto the Lord and serving him so that we might be chiefly known as a worshiper of God. Verse nine. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. 
Now, this is by itself strong evidence that Paul was afraid because if he wasn't, there'd be no real reason for God to tell him not to be. But even in 1 Corinthians, again, the letter that Paul will eventually write to this church that he is participating in creating, he says that I was with you, the Corinthians, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And so what was that fear? It's not explicitly clear here, but like I said, we know Paul has been chased and mobbed and even stoned at least to looking dead. So no doubt he had uh, much reason to have physical fears uh, for his own well-being. But God gives him three promises. He says, I am with you. Give us the, the promise of presence, right? And this is something as Christians, we, we know we could answer this question in Sunday school, right? God is always with us. In uh, Psalm 16, it says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. The opportunity to be in God's presence. In James 4, 8, it says, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And, and the certainty, the knowing of the presence of God, his closeness with us in every circumstance should push out all fears of, of danger, of philosophy, of darkness, of all these things that we've kind of considered earlier on that may hinder us knowing that God is with us and God's presence is a reality in our lives as believers should encourage us. He says, for I am with you and... No one will attack you to harm you. The promise of protection. Now, extremely relevant and specific promise to Paul here in this instance. Like I said, not an outlandish concern. We may have a little fear of physical harm during evangelism, depending on where we are. If we're in America, not so much. Other parts of the world may be more. But this was a very specific promise to Paul that I imagine he was very relieved to hear. Now, Each of us, we are not promised safety from physical harm. I want us to think about Hebrews 13, 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, he can beat you and kill you and kill your friends and family and take things from you, right? But yet, we shouldn't fear man. So we may not have a protection in the sense that Paul did, but we do have a protector who will not allow anything to happen to us that does not further his kingdom and his glory. Think about this. If Paul's right, if we look at the story of Paul being stoned almost to the point of death, what do we see in that story? We see uh, the, the brothers and the other believers come out to Paul after that and they help him and he rises up. And what does he do? The next day he's well enough to travel and he continues on for the word. What a story of encouragement. What if Paul had been protected from that? Right. The Lord allows things that we see a lot of nasty ones, it seems, in the scripture allows these things to happen because they further his glory and his kingdom. So we may not have a promise of physical protection, but we have a promise that God is absolutely in control and that nothing is going to happen to us that surprises him if we are in uh, 
the line of his work and obedience to him, we can be sure that nothing is going to take us off of that course if we're obeying the Lord Jesus. Even those bad things that may happen to us, we have a perfect protector. And man can do a number of things, but they are still not worth our fear and our concern if the Lord is our helper. But here to Paul, it is the promise of physical protection, it seems, at least in Corinth. And then third, God gives him the promise of his uh, of His plan, of his perfect plan. Uh, he says, I have many in this city who are my people. Well, the current circumstance doesn't seem like there's a lot of people in the city that are, his, are the people of God, right? You've got Paul, um, Timothy and Silas are now there. Um, Aquila and Priscilla may have been converted by now. Um, Justice seems pretty good. Crispus and his family. And some of the Corinthians are coming. But this is a city of thousands and thousands of people. And God speaks about the people of Corinth with such confidence that he says, there are many in this city who are my people. Right? Continue on with the work. There are people in this city that will turn to the gospel. Proverbs 16.8, right? This is a fairly common verse we hear a lot. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has a perfect plan for each believer if we would be obedient. And we'll see the fruit, uh, maybe not even in this lifetime, but we will produce the fruit that God intends for us with his perfect plan, even in some places that seem so dark and immoral, that we can't imagine a response so full of hatred and rejection of the gospel that we can't imagine a response. So full of alternative and false religion that we can't imagine a response. But God has a perfect plan in those situations. And we can be assured of that. And that should encourage us as well. And as one, one commentator said, there may often be more hope in converting one who is openly dissolute and abandoned, rejects the gospel, than one who prides themselves on philosophy and are confident in their own wisdom. So often those places we see the most darkness and the most wickedness, like we said at the start, is the opportunity for the light maybe to shine the brightest. But God has a plan regardless. We know his, his presence is with us, that anything that befalls us is within his uh, sovereignty, and that he has a plan if we would be obedient and serve him. In the last section here, verses 11 through 17. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God. So up to this point, this is the longest period of time that he spent anywhere. Uh, he would later stay in Ephesus for three years. But up to this point, he's not stayed anywhere this long, uh, which does in a human sense, makes sense that if you're trying to build a firm foundation for a church, um, foundation is the, the Lord Jesus. If you're trying to build a church out of such material, in a human sense, you might need a little extra time there and, and the Lord could use you. And it seems that that's what happened here. 18 months he spends here in Corinth. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So Gallio's the governor of Achaia, which is sort of a larger area that Corinth was in. And the Jews bring Paul before the court, if you would. It's sort of a judgment seat. Um, 
If you happen to know the name Seneca, who was an ancient philosopher, Gallio was his brother. And he was described by Seneca and by other writers of the time as being uh, a very mild, gentle, kind man. Gallio was known as this sort of gentle, kind man. But the Jews bring Paul before him. And they say this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now they may have been sort of trying to convince Gallio that this was an issue of Roman law, that these these beliefs and these ideas are going to cause a disruption. Because if they they might have rightly been concerned that Gallio would not care about their religious laws and their religious concerns. But they say this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And Paul goes to defend himself in verse 14. He opens his mouth, but Gallio says, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. Now, of course, is Jesus the Messiah would be just words to Gallio, not a matter of importance. And he says, this is a religious matter. I am not going to deal with this. Now, there's a small sense in which we can commend Gallio for this. Now, it seems he was a a godless man, but there are instances in which leaders in government might do well not to fiddle too much and stick their hands into religious matters and pretend that it is their own purview. But uh, Gallio says... Not for me. I refuse to be a judge of such things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now, the word drove there, I don't know if you might have a different word. Sounds a little aggressive, but it's not. It's specifically a less aggressive word. Um, Just a dismissal, right? Jesus has an aggressive word in the New Testament of driving people out from the temple, right? Throwing them out. But here, it's not. doesn't seem to be too violent. Not from Gallio. But what happens in verse 17... My translation says, they all seized Sosthenes. But many translations will specify and clarify that it was the Greeks that seized Sosthenes. So now Sosthenes is the ruler of the synagogue. It seems that, right, Crispus was the leader. He's converted. Uh, Sosthenes becomes the leader and he takes the Jews to Gallio to try and get rid of Paul. Gallio says, not my problem. Get out of here. And perhaps the other Greeks in the area were just annoyed with the Jews, right? Throughout scripture, the Jews are pretty uh, contentious, irritating people to the surrounding nations. You can see that in history, too. If you read ancient history from the time, the Jews had a reputation of being just the worst. Of constantly stirring up strife and chasing people down. They go into cities, they incite other mobs. And Gallio says, get out of here. This is not my issue. Maybe he wants to prevent a mob at that point. Get out of here. I'm not dealing with this. And Sosthenes is beaten in front of the tribunal. Right? The, it seems that the Greeks, annoyed with this attempt, beat Sosthenes in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, even after that, Sosthenes would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see in that, right, the, uh, in Sosthenes specifically, uh, after that issue, um, the replacement of Crispus, right, Sosthenes, 
beaten in front of the tribunal. This doesn't, at least long term, this doesn't harden his heart against the gospel, but the gospel still pierces and he becomes a brother in Paul's own words. So the expectations and the encouragement, if we can kind of summarize what we've just considered into a a, a few small points as we conclude here quickly. To be occupied in spite of opposition, right? Occupied with the word, compelled by the word, pressed in by the word, uh, being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of the opposition that we should expect. Hardship can make you weary without fellowship. So we see, right, Paul calls for Timothy and Silas to come to him. He experiences their fellowship. And whether that was the the complete uh, independent catalyst of his occupation with the word, he wanted them there. No doubt, or most likely, I shouldn't say no doubt, uh, but most likely they had brought news of the cities that he had just been in. He might have heard of the work that was actually going on and growing there and being encouraged by that. So what does that mean? Two things. To, to help ourselves from becoming weary and in doing good and obeying the gospel, that we should make sure we are in an experiencing fellowship. Don't isolate ourselves. And then second, we ought to make sure we give fellowship, right? Paul asked for the fellowship here, but we ought to be very uh, sure that we initiate and make sure we're, we're, we're coming together and being around one another in camaraderie and fellowship and encouraging one another to continue on in the work of the Lord because there is going to be opposition and resistance. We can, of course, remember how dark and immoral the city of Corinth was and how well, uh, even though it may have seemed a, a, a wearisome start, how well the gospel managed to pierce through the city and create the Corinthian church that we get to um, learn about and we see Paul's letters to Crispus and Sosthenes, these people that would have been likely the most opposed to the gospel coming to the Lord, right? We think of today's Crispuses and Sosthenes, leaders of other religions, right? And we, at least myself, maybe think that person has no chance, but maybe if some of his followers aren't paying attention, I can convince them. But here the leaders pierced by the gospel. And then what Paul didn't even get to fully experience in his life, the effect that the Corinthians have today, right? Think about the letter, just just the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, how much there is there for us as believers, touching millions and millions of believers from the work that Paul pressed on in despite opposition has an effect now on hundreds of millions of individuals. And for everyone, Christians or not, just running through those first little uh, points again, that as a believer, we might be encouraged to remember these things about our salvation. And if we aren't sure of our forgiveness in Christ and the sacrifice that he made, that we would strongly consider these things. Why should we care about the salvation? Why should we care that Jesus is the Messiah, the one who came to forgive sins? Why should we depend on it, right? That day is coming where you will have to be before God. Jesus is the one who said it. You know, we have an advantage in some major world religions where they respect Jesus very much. And Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus closed all the other options off. When we stand before God, there's nothing that we will stand on 
accept the salvation offered by Jesus, right? That Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, right? We were in that kind of darkness. Paul would even say that, right? Talking about lots of immorality and and, and sin that was in uh, Corinth and said, such were some of you, right? This is how you behaved. This is how you lived. But placing your faith in Christ's death for the forgiveness of sins is the only option. And none of us deserve it, right? That should be something that strengthens us and encourages us, even as believers, each day that we were given such a great mercy. And that's what we just spent time this morning considering, right? The sacrifice that the Lord gave us, remembering that uh, body and blood that was given for us. And how even just that fact that we do not deserve it ought to stir us up into evangelism and occupation despite opposition. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this, the illustrations that you give us in the word. You have clear commands in scripture, um, but we need uh, illustrations sometimes to get it through our heads. Um, and, we, and we praise you that you give us so much that we can be encouraged by specifically and uh, look to and, and rely on as absolute truth. Help us to get that truth into our hearts and minds throughout uh, the week, throughout the days, not just on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. Uh, we would be occupied. We would be consumed by the word and it would um, change us and transform us and compel us on and encourage us and help us to encourage each other and to check in on one another and to not neglect meeting together and be in fellowship and be encouraged on uh, for the work that you have called us to, God. And help us to be sources of light. That we would be a good witness in all that we do. Everything we do unto the Lord. That we would shine brightly. And in, in dark times that we would be even more encouraged to shine uh, the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the Lord Jesus in to the circumstances we see all around us. Keep us safe the rest of this day as we travel back to our homes. Until we are able to meet together again. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.